You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Some people swear that there's more to life than climbing. And though I'm skeptical, I think I know what they're talking about. The approach to and from the climbing. Which frankly, can sometimes feel like you're just walking. But then other times, you're feeling pretty gripped and wondering, is Anna going to be pissed if I make us break the rope out? Well, here's a pro tip. Anna's probably thinking the same thing about you. So why not end the game of who's the chicken chicken and just get the damn rope out? You can also let Sportiva hedge your bets with their legendary TX line of approach shoes. From the almost a climbing shoe performance of the TX Guide to the street comfort of the TX4 and the featherweight impeccable Descent Master TX2s, Sportiva's approach shoes are all built for the abuse of proper walk-up, top-out, and descent can dish out. But what's more, the sleek style will be a wink and a nod to those other climbers at that forced lowland social engagement who are also running beta in their heads while everyone else talks about work. So shop and compare the TX line at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop and make your every step feel like an approach to adventure. Hey, 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 hey. is somebody going to let me out of here? Hello? Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it. really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is April 13th, 2021, about 9.30 p.m. here in Colorado, and this is episode 218 of the Enormacast, a conversation with my sort of long-lost friend, Mark Sinat. No, he's not lost. He's around. But we haven't seen each other in forever, even though we hung out uh, in some trying situations back in the day trying but hilarious. And speaking of Mark Sinat, I want to do a little commercial for myself today and talk to you about The Runout. The Runout is the other podcast that I do. I like saying the other podcast because it triggers Andrew Bisharat, who's my partner over there at The Runout Podcast. And people have asked me what the difference is. And Mark Sinat is a good example of what the difference is because we're double dipping with Mark. Mark has a book coming out this week. And so he's wanting help promoting that book. And so we're going to put out this Enormacast, plus I'm recording a runout episode with him tomorrow morning with Andrew Bishrat as well. Now, what is the difference? Well, on the Enormacast, we talk about kind of Mark's entire career and our relationship as well. You know, we mentioned his beginnings as a climber. We dip into a few of his many expeditions, 35-some expeditions, 
couldn't even in an hour and a half couldn't get to all of them. We talk about his personal life, you know, his philosophy about climbing, and then finally we do get to his book, but it's only a section of a much larger view of his career. While meanwhile, at the runout, we can just focus in on the book. We kind of run that show as sort of a current events topic show. And yeah, so we'll just be talking about the book in more depth than we do here on the Normacast. So that's kind of the difference. And that's why they sort of go together. And I decided to start another podcast. Plus, I actually wanted to collaborate with somebody. And Andrew was available. Plus, we're friends. We like hanging out together. So the other thing is that the line of questioning will involve Andrew a lot more. And so, you know, you get a whole different perspective. And with Mark being a writer, Andrew being a writer, I think there'll be a lot of fertile conversation there that I'll just get to listen to. So yeah, I would love you guys to check that one out as well. We're doing it without sponsors over there. So we're doing it entirely listener supported. So check it out if you need more climbing podcasts in your life. Do you? Do you really need more of that? Do you need more Calouse in your life? More of this voice coming in your ears? And of course, my partner Andrew Bisharat is at least 50% of the show. Former editor at Rock and Ice for, gosh, feels like decades. I mean, it was many, many years. Author, purveyor of Evening Sends. Yeah, he's over there too. And we have actually quite different perspectives on a lot of things, which leads to some fun banter. I'm a lot sunnier than he is. I think it's good for him to have me around, actually. And finally, I'm much more opinionated over there on the runout. It actually is a bit of that type of show, editorial kind of content. So yeah, runout podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get this one. I'm sure it pops up right next to this one now. All right, how about this episode with Mark Sinat? We finally connected because Mark released a book today called The Third Pole, Mystery, Obsession, and Death on Mount Everest. And uh, he's a bit of a technophobe, but releasing the book kind of broke him out of that. He's sort of being forced to come on shows like this. Um, and, but it was great to catch up because, again, we haven't seen each other in forever. And we opened the, opened the podcast with uh, a little bit of talk about the olden days and how long it's been since we've seen each other, which was a lot of fun because, honestly, looking at his face on the screen was the closest I've come to seeing him in 20 years. However, again, the occasion of him coming on the show is this book that's just come out, which I have read, and I will admit, and I admitted to him on the interview, that I had some trepidation about reading a book about Everest, at least the modern Everest. I'm just not that interested in it, but I enjoyed the hell out of this book. First of all, Mark's a great writer. Second of all, he has a perspective on it that I totally respect, being an OG rock climber and a big wall climber and also a former dirtbag. He goes to Everest thinking one thing and comes back thinking another. And uh, that transformation is really interesting. Plus, there's a ton of history in there. He is there to search for the body of Sandy Irvin, who disappeared with George Mallory on the first serious attempt and possibly the first ascent of the mountain back in the 20s. And the big piece of mythology that goes with that is that Sandy Irvin may have a camera. His body may have a camera on it that has film that may in fact be preserved and prove that they might have summited before they disappeared. A lot of might-haves, but that's what makes it a mystery. But more than that, Mark and I catch up. We talk a lot about his personal life, about what it took to do 35-plus expeditions and also have four kids, raising a couple of them 
into their 20s, I think, or their late, late teens at this point, as well as having a five-year-old right now. So that's a really interesting perspective, how he pulled that off, or as the case may be, did not pull it off. And uh, yeah, we go all over the place. So I hope you dig this one. I had a great time catching up with Mark, and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing his face, maybe if he gets on one of these book tours or something like that to Colorado coming up if COVID settles down enough in the next couple months. So yeah, look for him out there on the road promoting this book and uh, please go check it out. The third poll, mystery, mystery. obsession, obsession. obsession. Death. Obsession. Death. Obsession. death. I'm not Everest. I'm making fun, but believe me, it's a great fucking book. Well, howdy, buckaroos. It's springtime. And them foals are kicking, and the sun's coming up earlier and earlier, which only means one thing. Your dawn patrol's going to have to start earlier, too. Let's face it, the only thing better than first tracks is first gram. That's right, your sick shit should be the first thing them losers have stayed up all night binge-watching Tiger King see in their feed. Right as that first sip of joe from a to-go cup dribbles inevitably down their chins. Damn, they'll think. Sending V3 at 4 a.m., that is sick. Well, Black Diamond has everything you need for a proper Dawn Patrol mission. Headlamps to light the hallway as you sneak out. The perfect layering system to peel when you start to get as moist as a newborn lamb. They got ski gear for skiers who aren't over it yet. And climbing gear for overstoked climbers like us. And even bouldering pads. Because truth is, morning Mountain Dew sounds great if you want to punch your hand through a car window, but it sucks ass for actual pebble wrestling. So let Black Diamond support your morning mania and that inevitable drop in productivity by 1pm because they literally make every damn thing a climber needs except the caffeine. Wake up and head over to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop for all the gear you need on your next dawn patrol. And you know, Black Diamond loves this damn podcast. Okay. I just have to reach over here to my vodka. That's really all I have to do. And I'll okay. Be okay. I'll be okay. All right. I don't know what that was about either, but uh, it's only been an hour. What's the big okay. deal, right? It's okay. It's actually kind of getting me warmed up in a weird way. Okay, cool. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I don't do any sort of intro, so we can just kind of kind of start rolling in, and uh, and I I mean I think it's it's cool. We just catch up a little bit, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I, I agree. Well, I haven't seen your face apart from the internet in a long time, dude. Yeah, I know it. I know it. Same same difference. Just pictures and and uh, stuff going on 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 films and on uh, National Geographic stuff too. And it's like. Got it. I was just now. I was driving, and I'm like, Jesus, man. It's like we met in at CSU, correct? Yeah, that was that was in like 1990. Right, right. 91, 90, 92. I mean, I was only there till 93. So, and you like li- either lived with or I just were always with Simon, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So that was. That was 30 years ago. Fuck yeah, I know, dude. That's crazy. And a lot of people who listen to your pro- podcast are potentially weren't even alive back then yeah. 
<laughs> when you and I met. No, it's crazy. Yeah, and and uh, and we didn't really know each other that well at CSU. Um, I just knew who you were and that you were a climber. And uh, well, I don't think we ever did anything together. It, it was almost like, oh yeah, we sort of like retroactively remembered each other when we we started hanging out a little bit in Yosemite. I think. But yeah, you're you're. I have a funny story about Simon. Actually, I don't know if this will get into the podcast. But what was his last name? Algren. He turned up at a at a event in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, like four or five years ago that I was doing. So he knew I was going to be there because it was like the Normacast is going to come and do this event. He was just traveling through. He doesn't live in Wisconsin. Um, no. And he, he comes up and he hands me a pair of binoculars, which we had climbed, I think, when I was in Estes Park. So at the late 90s, we'd gone up and done something in the park. We were like looking for a new route or something. And he had ended up with my damn binoculars. And so he hands me this pair of binoculars literally, you know, 20 years later. And uh, he's like, man, sorry, I've had these the whole time. And I was like. That is classic <laughs> Simon. Yeah, I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I, I, when we, we did that trip into the park, I, I kept, I have these binoculars from then. So, yeah, I got my binoculars back after 20 years. Well, his his nickname was and still is Mochi, <laughs> and I have no idea where that came from. I definitely was the one who made it up, and I don't know if you remember way back then, which is maybe in the 90s, possibly even before then, but La Sportiva used to do this ad where they had a picture <laughs> of the Mega. Remember the Mega was the best shoe? Oh, yeah. And then it had these little lines going off it. And it would have names of the people that they sponsored who wore that shoe. And Simon cut that out and then he drew in, he squeezed in a little line and then it said Mochi. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a lot of, um, it's probably not appropriate for this, but I have a lot of Mochi stories. I have so many because we did so much stuff together. And by the way, he was my neighbor in Wellesley, Mass, where I grew up. Right. Literally my next door neighbor. Right, okay. And then it just turned out that he was a climber and we formed this incredible friendship and we did so much cool stuff together and we're still, you know, best buds. But when I went, I think it was my first trip to Baffin Island in 1995 and I was living in that house that you were describing in Fort Collins and I can't remember the address, but it was, uh, it was, it was a pretty scummy scummy place they were like people living mm -hmm. in the garage and backyard and stuff and when i left i said hey simon i'm going to leave my car here but whatever you do do not touch my car don't look at my car <laughs> don't drive my car <laughs> don't go near it but i had to leave the keys in case it had to get moved or whatever and then i went to baffin i was gone for like two months and i came back and i called the house and I was talking to our other roommate, and I'm like, hey, Simon around? He's like, no, he's not here. And then in the background, I heard this incredible noise, which is basically a, the sound of a vehicle that had no muffler. And <laughs> and uh, he was like, oh, wait a second. No, he's pulling in now in your car. <laughs> and I was like, my car? What do you mean? That's the sound of my car? And I told Simon he couldn't drive my car. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, he's been using it as a work vehicle all summer. 
and Simon's job was laying sod in Fort Collins, and it was a Subaru wagon. So he was filling the back up with rolls of sod with no tarp or anything like that. So And probably was riding basically on the on the suspension, so what did he tear the tear the muffler off yeah. on some bump probably? Because yeah, sod is not light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my car was uh never the same. We called it yeah, there's a lot of there's stories about that vehicle as well. But th- those were the good old days, Chris, in, in mm-hmm. Fort Collins. Yeah, um, for sure. Those were our glory days, for sure. <laughs> Thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because then we we met up in in Yosemite after that, and actually ended up climbing together. I mean, from my point of view, and like we had just said, we haven't actually seen each other since I think probably then, or or maybe sometime slightly after that. But it's been, I think it's what, it has to have been 20 years at least since we've actually seen each other in person. But I've been, you know, obviously it's not easy or not hard to uh, keep track of what you've been up to. And it's been quite a, a cosmic kind of thought pattern because, you know, you were like this classic super dirtbag, you know, in Fort Collins, you lived in that house. Um, you were just patching together whatever work and money you could do to do the trips, which is like the classic format, you know, of like just work and get money together, then go to Baffin, and then work and get money together and go to the next place. And in Yosemite too, you were basically like a, a classic cave liver, you know, just making it work out there as well. And so it's been really fascinating to be like, wow, this guy is a journalist and he's, you know, on these expeditions, not just as a dirt bike climber, but as someone recording it. And, um, you know, and then also you've been producing books. So it's been, it's been a pretty fascinating journey and hopefully we can kind of, you know, catch up with it all. Um, yeah, it's just been really fascinating is all I have to say is, is just watching that person that I knew grow into this person who has this like, uh, I mean, 30 some expeditions. I don't know even how many you've probably been on and in, 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 since we know, knew each other. Well, that uh, that cuts both ways, doesn't it, Chris? Because, <laughs> I mean, that's why, you know, we're we're reconnected, you know, because you have followed your own unique path. And in a lot of ways, we're we're kind of doing the same thing, which is telling stories and maybe trying to find a little bit of meaning in what we do by sharing it and trying to share the essence of it with other people. And I mean, you have been doing an incredible job of that, not to turn this into a mutual admiration society or anything, (laughs) because I absolutely hate that shit and it's, 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 it's obnoxious, but um, yeah, I love the way that you just sort of cut to the core of things. And that's one of the things that I, remember about you and I've been trying to do the same and you know part of it is just not wanting climbing to be essentially what it is which is a selfish pursuit Mm -hmm. because I've dedicated my whole life to this and and I don't want it to just be about me I, I I mean at first I didn't care about that at all but then when I got deeper into it and I you know, really like became an adult and had children. There was definitely a moment when I, you know, sort of thought about things and realized like, wow, I need to find a way where this isn't just only about me. 
mm-hmm. and what I'm getting out of it. And so I think, you know, storytelling in the in a journalism is is really sort of what that's all about. Yeah, I mean, in part of that that watching your journey thing is, you know, I have this five year old now. I mean, I'm fifty, and uh, he both of us we have the same birthday. He turned five, I turned fifty, and um, but meanwhile, I mean, you have what an eighteen year old. I have a nineteen. I have a twenty-two year old. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, let me think. A twenty-two, nineteen, fifteen, and five. And you might not remember this, and you can tell tell me what your son's birthday is, but it's very close to mine. Oh to, yeah. To my new little guy, Tommy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that's right. We did talk about that. March fourth. Okay. Yeah. We. Uh, he's twenty-fifth. Yeah. So, yeah. We were. We actually. Yeah. He was born just before. Um, he was born just before my guy was. Yeah, so I have a I have a 5-year-old, so you and I are both in the old dad's club. Yeah, yeah, but I mean it's kind of wild. I mean, even that like again, like think about who we were uh whatever it was like 1996, 95, 96 is when we were in Yosemite um or when we like when we climbed uh El Cap together with Kevin Thaw and I think that was 96, but anyway, one of those two years. Uh, I mean, just thinking about who we were then and just to imagining like if I had turned to you on, you know, whatever the Irie or whatever ledge up on fricking the reticent wall and been like, you know, in, in 20 years, you're going to have three kids. And so one of them was to be a teenager or whatever, like you'd have just, you would have given me that classic, you know, scrappy cackle and just been like, yeah, shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> no one would have imagined it and the funny thing is so so that climb that we did that was in i i think it was in 97 okay um and i think it was right after that i think it was either right before or after that season that i went to shipton spire but that was when i got back together with my girlfriend from fort collins who you might have met lauren and in a very rapid succession, in exactly nine months, I went from just being scrappy, like living in the back of my Subaru, to being a father. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I would catch up with people like you or other, you know, kind of members of the climbing tribe. Right. And they'd be like, hey, what's going on? And I'd be like, well... Um, actually I'm, uh, married. I just bought a house and <laughs> I've moved back East and no one could really believe it. Is their jaw it, like gets closer and closer to the ground? <laughs> it went really, really quickly from the, the point where I was hanging out with you to, um, yeah, like sort of what you might call the real world or some semblance of it. You know, I saw something that, that you posted recently about where you were musing about you can't even imagine, you know, what your life would be like without being a parent. And that really hit home for me because, I mean, I I'm I feel so lucky that that, that happened because secretly, mm-hmm. even though I would never admit it to anyone, especially back then... It's what I wanted out of life. I wanted to be a parent and I was I was afraid. I was afraid of it of it, of what it would be and who the people would be, and I was also afraid that it wouldn't happen. 
and it did and now here I am I'm I'm 51 and I have these four great kids they're all awesome and I I've had two wives and and the reason I have a 5-year-old is because I got divorced and remarried mm-hmm. um and I started a new family you know all the adventures and those expeditions and everything that's always what's what's driven me but there's nothing more awesome that's happened to me in my life than than parenthood and I kind of so I really appreciated it when you put that up because I, I think you know we're on the same page as, as far as that goes and like everybody you know who's in our position I think would sure would be right there with us well yeah I mean it was it was actually that I I, I said that I couldn't really remember what I was doing before and uh which was like a comment on as much of like how I had just fallen into such a pattern of like well I'm just gonna keep climbing and I've met people who I've climbed with and actually pretty significant routes, you know, not like giant things, but let's say like the, the scenic cruise in the black Canyon, you know, it's like, and, and they reminded me that we've climbed it together. And I was like, I'll have to take your word for it. Cause I have no uh, 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 recollection of that, uh, uh. you know? So it was like, I was just in this kind of like, you know, rinse repeat sort of mode. And, uh, and then it just like swept it away. And, and Steph and I, my partner and I are both like, yeah, this is, this all we would have been doing is just the same old damn thing, you know? So it was like a good, for me, it was a good shock. And, um, not unlike your first one, you know, it wasn't something we had, had planned. I mean, maybe you did plan the first one. I don't know. It didn't sound like it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was just kind of like happened and we were like, all right, let's do this. So yeah, it's been, it's been pretty wild. Um, but you know, you, you, you've just written a, a book it should be out right about now when we put this thing out. Um, in, in the next couple of weeks, um, as we're talking here, um, the third poll and I just got it last week and I didn't get through it all. So I, I did about the first third and then I started sampling through the rest of it, but, um, we'll finish it, but in preparation for this interview, um, but I did get to the chapter where you did talk about your divorce and meeting the new person and talking about how those expeditions did, you know, the, the being gone from home, it was the classic sort of thing of, of definitely, you know, if not poisoning any part of parenting, at least poisoning uh, your relationship. So, it, it, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and, and, you know, how you managed to sort of stay on top of parenting as well with, with go, being out of the country? Okay, before I got divorced, I I used to do this presentation that was about finding balance between my passion as an adventurer and a climber and you know the other side of my life which was parenthood and and um and being a a husband and I thought that was you know well it was integral to who I was as a person it was really important to me and I thought it was a cool topic and and then it got to a point where, well, that all fell apart and I didn't, I didn't stick it. And, um, and so then I, I went to do this talk at, uh, you know, some random place. It was like mystic seaport or something in Connecticut. And I guess we hadn't talked about the introduction to the show and they found somewhere where that was like what the intro was. So the woman got up there and was doing the intro and I was there with my buddy, and I had just separated from my wife. <laughs> and the whole thing was about 
I'm like right. I'm sitting in the front row, about to walk <laughs> up and present to these people, and the lady's talking about how good I am at balancing it all, and how you know he's he's this guy's figured it out, how he can do this thing that like nobody can do, which is be gone all the time on these expeditions and have a great scene at home. And I mean, and and I had literally just moved out of the family home, and the family home is where I grew up. So, I mean, we're talking, like, deep pain. Um, and, in right. fact, I, I I, I, think I might have wrote, wrote about this at one point somewhere. Maybe it never made it into, you know, anything. But I, I cried that night that I moved out of the house. We sat the kids down. We told them that I wasn't going to do it. And then it was, like, a few nights later. I had this talk scheduled. And I was there with my friend. And and he like jabbed me in the ribs and he was like, Oh buddy, that's gotta hurt and then they're like, Yeah, and everyone's <laughs> clapping, they're like, Cool, let's hear this talk And it was so rough. Like talk about taking the wind out of out of someone's sails and um and that's what happened to me and so so this you know, the story is that uh is that I I, I didn't I didn't I didn't stick it and that I I, I probably was, you know, pretty selfish and self-centered with the stuff that I was doing. I mean, I was always trying really hard to to keep it together and to be a good dad and a good husband when I was home, but I was going on a lot of trips and um I know that my uh that my first wife Lauren thought that uh you know, that I was more p- passionate and cared more about climbing than I did about her and the family. And right. it, and I mean, it's, it's obviously it's complicated, but, and there's lots of other stuff, but, uh, but that was definitely sort of right at the heart of it. And the stuff that I wrote about in this new book was uh, just sort of the idea of putting myself in kind of the same position again and, and asking myself, Wow, Mark, are are you just doing the same thing again, and and uh, repeating the same pattern? I've, I've I feel like I learned a lot from uh, you know from my first marriage, mm-hmm. and um, and I wanted to take that and sort of apply it to being the better husband and father in the future. But I am kind of doing the same stuff. Right. You know, well, it's your career. And I mean, it, it, to, to put it in perspective for, for folks, you know, it involved going on an expedition to Everest, which included some historical and scientific work, but also, you know, certainly included a summit bid and uh, everything that goes with that. So, yeah, I mean, that that is the sort of uh, the framing in the book is is, is sort of sheepishly sheepishly or tentatively approaching um, your wife now and being like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do and like waiting for the fallout in a way. Well, asking her yeah, and saying, Hey, here's, here's an idea that I have. And (laughs) we, we had already been together for a bunch of years at that point. And she kind of had me figured out and it's not hard for anyone to figure out what my scene is, which is basically that I, I, I'm always scheming. I'm scheming for my next adventure. And 
the deeper that I get into it, the bigger the adventures get, I feel like. And so she so already knew that that's kind of, you know, who she had married. But when I told her my plan for Everest, her initial reaction was, really? Everest? Right. Like, uh, that's really not your scene. I'm pretty sure you told me you weren't into that at all. And it was sort of like antithetical to what you think climbing is all about. Everybody's already been there and done that. And like, I don't, I don't get it. And I'm not seeing that. That doesn't seem like a good fit for you. And, uh, you know, from there I had to convince her and I had to, uh, explain to her, well, essentially that she was right, but that I still, I had gotten sucked into this mystery and that I, f that I felt like there was a, not only an adventure that I wanted to go on, but a, but a story that I wanted to tell. Sounds like she agreed and, and, uh, and off you went. Was there, you know, what, was it sort of on the surface that everything was, was hunky dory? Because a lot of times in relationships, you know, there's a lot of that sort of kind of taking what you hear and running with it. If you know what I mean? Like, you know, someone in the other side of the relationship says, yeah, sure. Go on your trip. And you're like, okay, she said it. But in the back of your head, like, did she really mean it? You know, do you know what I mean? Like, how, how did yes. it all end up working out for you guys? Well, I understand all too well what you're talking about because I did that dozens of times with my <laughs> right, first right. wife. And what happens is if if you're, yeah, if you're pushing it a little bit, you end up in a position where, you know, your partner is actually starting to feel a little bit resentful about what you're doing. And you can build up a, a certain amount of resentment in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And if the people are strong individuals, they can deal with it and they can still be together and it's okay. But one of the things that I learned is that if that builds up too much, you can get to a point where you can't like scoop it back out of the bucket anymore. <laughs> and the, the bucket overflows right. and then you're pretty much screwed. And that's, you know, what happened uh, to me. So, like, I learned that lesson the hard way. I'm trying to make sure that that um, doesn't happen with Hampton. Um, I think something that's working in my favor is that she very much shares uh, what I would call the spirit of adventure. Mm -hmm. Like, she gets it. And um, the call of the mountains... Like 100%, she's she's a mountain person, and she's an adventurer. And essentially what happened, and I explain this in the book, is that well, once I told her what the story was and why I wanted to tell it, she, she bought in right away, and she offered her unconditional support without resentment, and then quickly sort of pivoted to, okay, well, that's that's awesome. And I'm psyched for you. Well, what am I doing? Because sitting at home and just taking care of Tommy isn't really going to cut it for me. And it's not really fair that you go on this big epic adventure and I just sit at home. So I want to do something really cool too. And I said, well, great, you know, figure it out. You know, I, I figured out what I want to do. So you figure out what you, you want to do. 
and uh, and she did and she decided that she wanted to go to France and enroll herself in French language school and stay with the family and have Tommy do French daycare and have them both like immersed in learning to speak French and she, you know she already had some background in that and so it just turned into this awesome thing where we both set off on our own adventures and we left at about the same time. I think she actually left on hers before I did and got home a little bit before me. Um, so one weird thing about the north side of Everest where we went is that there's internet access. So you roll into base camp. You actually drive into base camp and there's cell tower and you get L right. LTE. So we're communicating via WhatsApp and she's texting me photos of her trip in in France and so now when I look through my Everest folder of photos that are on my phone every other picture is her and Tommy in France right and I never was able I don't know how to do the settings correctly to get them extricated but uh her her, <laughs> her adventure was less dangerous than mine but but it was as meaningful to her as what I did if not more so and so that's sort of the, uh, you know, the recipe that we found that's working for us. And the other part of it, um, which, you know, I think is a little bit different from what I had going on in my first marriage, is that whenever it's even remotely humanly possible, I bring them with, with me. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a lot of that. I have my next thing coming up now, like next month, I'm going to Nepal to do another assignment for National Geographic. And it's, it doesn't involve going into the mountains. And so I'm bringing them with me. And, um, cool. and we've done a lot of that. And Tommy's been a lot of places and it's, and it's making it, it's making it work. And you must have sort of a mental system to uh, hopefully to check in with that now and again, <laughs> because I think of course what happens is, and you know, I, I never got married, so I never got divorced, but I certainly went through relationships in, in a similar fashion of, of in, in that idea of like you, you like climbing more than you like us, you know, as, as a couple or whatever, you know, that, that certainly has come up. And so, yeah, to have like a mental check-in to be like, all right, am I playing that game again? Or am I back here where I'm supposed to be? And, you know, like you said, scooping it out of the bucket <laughs> when I'm around. Yeah. I mean, once you've already been through it and you've had the experience of having the resentment build up too much, and a lot of us have been there, um, you get, it's, it's, it's not a black and white thing, but you just sort of, you can have a sense of how mm -hmm. much of that you can have, how much negativity can there be in a relationship before it ruins, you know, the good, right. the good part. And, um, well, it's, yeah, it's funny that you started this, this part of the, the talk with, uh, this presentation that you used to give because literally, you know, I, well, this is, you know, 200 and some episodes of the Enormacast, like people have come on here and we won't name names, but have given me that presentation as the interview, so to speak, like, you know, this is how I do it. And then since then relationships and things have been torn asunder as well and even during i've i've been sitting there like you know scraping my beard like i wonder if if i got your partner on the show if they would feel the exact same way you're presenting it you know what i mean so it's been kind of wild and, and it's just a tricky thing i mean just not being home when you have kids is 
that puts a lot of stress on a relationship 100%, you know? Yeah, it's a bad thing. And there's no real way around that. But, uh, but at the same time, I mean, I have fairly deep experience with this mm-hmm. in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, the way that I've lived my life. And I have four kids. And I have a wide gamut, too, you know, from 5 to 22. And somewhere where I kind of like to hang my hat. And, you know, you could talk to my to my my children about that, especially my two boys who are 22 and 19. You know, there's definitely some admiration for the fact that I have pursued my dreams. I'm living the life that I want to live. And they see that and they appreciate that. It doesn't take away from the fact that I've missed out on a lot of stuff. But, you know, I think there's there's something you know to to be said for for that for 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 figuring out what you're passionate about and what you love and what feeds your soul and then just going after it with everything that you've got and that's actually what i want my kids to do and and i i feel like that's really important i think that Caring deeply about things or a thing is what gives orientation and purpose to our lives. And for a lot of us, for the people that are, you know, your, you know, consumers, it's climbing. You know, for for my children, I don't care what it is. I just want it to be something. I th- there has to be something there because without that, then I think you can you can end up without the orientation, mm-hmm. and that. That's not good. Let's go back a little bit to the past, to our sort of mutual past in a lot of ways, and talk a little bit about who you were as a climber and maybe continue to be where, where those things um, intersect. But yeah, so we knew each other way back in Yosemite, wall climbers, both of us at the time, pretty much game for anything on El Cap. And then you went on to start doing expeditions around the world, um, starting with trips to Baffin, if I remember right, and Shipton, I think was in there as well. Um, can you sort of, well, actually, let me ask you about that trip. Um, the one I remember is the, is the, the, is it the great and secret show? Is that the name of yes. that route? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that happened not long after we were hanging out and, uh, it's just an, an, an incredible thing. And, and I kind of want to ask a little bit about who you were when you were in that, part of your life when, you know, going up on a Baffin big wall for 45 days seemed like a good idea and how you sort of got to that position as a climber where something like that didn't seem like a, a completely ludicrous notion. So talk about this scrappy from, I mean, shoot, what was that like 1998 or something like that? That mountain was called the polar sun spire mm-hmm. and that was in 1996 Okay. But I had gone to bat. I actually attempted the Polar Sun Spire in 1995. So I started climbing in 1985, and I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. I just was free climbing, and you know, climbing at like Cathedral Ledge in New Hampshire. I was training. I I I had a hangboard. I think I don't even know. I guess that was a thing back then. But I had a little hangboard in my little <laughs> attic and. I could do a lot of fingertip pull-ups, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we were trying to climb hard. And then I guess it was probably in 1988 
it was it was time to do the first road trip. I had just graduated from high school, and I and I had and I was reading climbing magazines. And you probably remember these days, like late eighties. Climbing magazine in particular was kind of like the Bible. There was nothing else. Sure. There was no internet, and so that's where we got our inspiration. And I remember like sitting at my house in Wellesley, Mass, and almost flipping a coin. What's it going to be, Smith Rocks or Yosemite? You know, am I am I am I going am I going to be a crack climber or am I, am I going to do sport? And I remember sitting in my little attic where my hangboard was and looking at a picture of someone on like one of those Smith Rocks like blank faces and being like, oh yeah, that's it. And then seeing someone on a crack like Peter Croft or something in Yosemite and being like, oh no no, it's going to be a crack. And right. anyways, I mean, as you know. It ended. I don't know why exactly what happened. The other choice was painter pants or lycra. <laughs> yeah, no, lycra was never part of the uh, part of the program. It wasn't Smith Rocks, sir. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> at the time. Yeah, it could have gone the other way. I guess. I mean, but uh, I, I went to Yosemite, and when you go to Yosemite and you show up there as a young, impressionable man or woman. You know, you just get sucked into the vortex, and I did, like 100%. And I think, you know, I guess my first season was in 1988, and then I I never stopped. I just kept on going and going. I'm, I'm sure it was the same thing for you. My first season in Yosemite was literally the best experience of my entire life, even though it was opening my eyes, you know, to this whole new world, I, I quickly realized that it it was a means to an end and not an end in itself. And one of the stories that I've told a, a lot, you know, like in my presentations is about the moment when I saw the first image of the Trango Towers in Pakistan. Up until that moment, I did not know that mountains like that existed. Mm-hmm. And when I saw... A picture, I think it was in Mountain Magazine. I still have the picture. I don't know what the issue was, but it was probably in the 80s. And it was a picture of of Great Trango and Nameless Tower. And I saw that, and it was, I mean, this will sound kind of cheesy, but but for people who were around back then and were passionate about big wall climbing like yourself, you kind of appreciate that it was a life-changing moment and I saw the picture and everything kind of coalesced in my mind and I thought oh that's it that's that's why I climb because I'm going to go and climb those towers and that's it nameless tower in particular I remember there's this one there's one guy who had a tattoo of nameless tower and (laughs) and that represented what it meant to all of us back then. And I think people nowadays won't get that and won't understand it. But back then, that's what it was about. And we all wanted to do that. And it was a passion that burned so brightly, there was just no way to even describe it. And so that was really what it was all about. And Baffin ended up being the stepping stone. It was all about about trying to go to Trango. Eventually, I did two expeditions to Baffin in '95 and '96, and in '96 we climbed the uh, the north face of Polar Sun Spire, and that's the one where we spent 39 days on the wall. 
And then in 97, I went to Shipton Spire in Pakistan. And on Shipton Spire, that's on the Trango Glacier. And across the valley is Nameless Tower and Great Trango. And it just so happens that we were staring at the northwest face of Great Trango Tower, which had never been climbed before. It was just like straight across from us. And so that's sort of how it all, you know, kind of came together and how um, how I ended up on this like obsessive path, you know, to just climb to climb these walls. Who were some of your contemporaries that you were climbing this stuff with? Just I kind of know, but uh, but l- let's talk a little bit about that. Well, the key to the whole thing, as everybody knows, is is your partners, and you you can't do anything great if you don't have good partners, and there would be no point because it wouldn't be fun. And I was never a soloist. And by the way, our climb of the reticent wall in '97, I mean that in my own mind is legendary not because of the climb but because of how much fun the three of us had (laughs) and and there's stories from that climb that we won't ever discuss but (laughs) you know that shit stays with you and and every climb every great adventure and every climb and expedition there'll be a theme there'll be like a funny thing that you joke and kind of riff about and um and I always have had that on every trip that I've done and that's that's the essence of it for me so I'm not I'm not a, a soloist you know I don't mm-hmm. I do tons mm-hmm. of stuff by myself now because it's just easy and I do really like being by myself but I've never done an expedition by myself and I don't want to I uh I get so much you know out of the, out of the the people that I'm that I'm with early on in Yosemite you know, the guy that inspired a lot of this was named Warren Hollinger. We met in the valley, and then we went to Baffin in 95 and 96. And uh, Warren ended up having kind of like a career-ending fall in Red Rocks that essentially ended his, his climbing career. And he, he was lucky to survive it, you know, and not be paralyzed. He fell trying to put up a first ascent, I think, on the Rainbow Wall. Mm-hmm. And was That's what with, I with Brian well. McRae, I think, and he was lucky, mm-hmm. lucky to survive. And uh, then what happened was the Mount Washington Valley Ice Festival invited. Well, they 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 still do this now, where they invite like the hot shots to come in, and and the hot shots in um, I guess it was probably ninety seven, which is the same year we climbed the Resin Wall was Jared Ogden and Alex Lowe. And Jared, and those, so those guys both came in, and then because I was a local climber, they said, hey, Mark, you know, take these guys out, like, you know, show them around and all that. And um, I really hit it off with both of them, um, but with Jared in particular. And Jared and I had a kindred spirit that I, I guess I've never really found with anyone else. Maybe, you know, Kevin Thaw, those two guys, you know, out of the, something like 35 expeditions I've done. Most of them were with those two. Yeah. We did so much um, cool stuff together and that was the, the essence of it. And I wouldn't have gone on any of those trips with anybody else. And now it's different, you know, now, now you propose trips and it's almost like you, you sort of 
like in terms of sponsorship and all that, you know, you kind of have to leave it open because your sponsors care about who you go with. But right. we were really lucky back then in the 90s and the 2000s where we could kind of write our own ticket. And it was like, this is the team. These are the guys. A lot of times it was me, Kevin, and Jared. And we were like, this is what we're doing. And um, we were super lucky to be in the right place at the right time where we were able to, uh, you know, get the support to, to go and do the stuff that we wanted to do. And, and by the way, I mean, everybody knows this, but it, it is pretty expensive, you know, to go to the Himalaya or Karakoram or wherever you're going to go. So we always felt like the sponsorship was really important because we didn't have a lot of money. Right. <laughs> and we kind of needed it, you know, to make it happen. Yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely part of the hustle, right? Is to is to figure out how it's all going to get paid for, as to whether or not everybody just works and pools money, or you know, especially when you start going across the world to Pakistan or to Nepal, and then the the peak fees and stuff, if they are involved, it gets really expensive really fast. And I, I think that partially, it seems like Baffin got pretty popular because you know at least we're on the same continent so to speak, even though there was a, you know, there was fees involved with people getting you in and out of there, but it seemed like that was an expedition that could sort of yield that kind of adventure without a lot of the red tape that might go with going into a place in, in Asia. Yeah, that's definitely true. Although, you know, nowadays Baffin's super expensive and right. it actually kind of was back then too, but it's, 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 it's become, um, more so, but it's, it's interesting just to kind of follow the, the, the trends. And there was a while there where, um, where, where Baffin was really, really hot, you know, and it seems yeah, like it's totally. much, much less. So, I mean, I know because I spent seven years of my life writing a guidebook to Baffin, you know, it's kind of funny, but that was actually my, my first book. I think I went on five trips to Baffin and then I spent seven years, you know, paying that shit off. Yeah. Well, no, like there was, there was no, no just there joking. was no money. There was no money involved. I've definitely heard some people who have criticized the Baffin guidebook, you know, and said like, Oh, there's no good information in here. And they, they sort of missed the point that I intentionally didn't put the information in. What I was doing was documenting the routes that have been done. I mean, the way I see it is if you're going to Baffin, you're going to do a first ascent. I mean, I really don't know anyone who's gone there to, like, repeat stuff. You could do, but it's a really long way to go. And it's a frontier of climbing, so there's still so much to be done. So I don't really see the point in going there and repeating routes. And I just wanted to lay it out for people. Here's what's been done, and use your imagination to picture where the gaps are. Right. And... As far as all the rest of it, figure it out yourself, like we did, you know. So that's that's still there and um, still a frontier, and that's that's one of the most awesome things about all of this is that as a young person, I was essentially told that I had missed out on the the golden age of climbing mm -hmm. and exploration and that it had all been done. I really um, hated that idea because I, I I loved reading books about, you know, like the early days of mountaineering and exploration. And 
one of the things that I've learned from all the the trips that I've done is that the golden age is 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 really still very much alive and there there's a lot out there that hasn't been explored particularly in the uh in the vertical realm and so I hope you know that the next generation is going to be you know motivated I th- I think they will be and I, I hope they sort of appreciate the resource in the same way you know that we always have I don't know if there there is a a watershed moment or maybe a trend but as you were you know we're talking about everything leading up to this idea of climbing in Pakistan climbing nameless or trango you know doing your own expeditions trying to you know just basically tell your sponsors this is how it's going to go down at what point did you feel like it had switched over into someone going on to certain expeditions as a journalist or with a journalistic eye you know because that that's kind of been the thing that's been most interesting to me is watching you sort of transition into again this journalist a documentarian not in the sense of making the films yourselves but uh but going on these trips to be part of the support or part of the person that's telling the story. Can you talk a little bit about that trend and when you sort of woke up in that position? I think that that coincided with the moment where I realized that I had major problems in my personal life in terms of like the seeds of my, my divorce with my Mm -hmm. first wife and having her sort of point out to me that that I was being selfish and that no one was getting anything out of what I was doing other than me. And I think that it was 2003 around then where I had that revelation and realized that she was right and that I wanted to try to... Uh, I don't know, reevaluate things and figure out if there was a way to use the skills that I had developed as a climber to, you know, try to do something a little bit more meaningful. And I came up with this idea of going on an expedition to the Amazon to climb a tapui. Instead of just like going and doing a first ascent, I would team up with a scientist and I would basically work with him to enable him to get into terrain in the tapuis where he could look for new species and make, you know, discoveries for the benefit of mankind and so forth. While at the same time that I was pioneering, you know, first ascent on a tapui. And I, I met up with this scientist whose name was Bruce Means. I think National Geographic introduced us. And on our first expedition, we went to, uh, prow on Mount Roraima and I think on that first trip I I was thinking about this but I was still kind of caught in the same I don't know paradigm that I had been following all along but I remember on that expedition watching him at one point when he was journaling and he was drawing pictures of these frogs that he that he was finding And and he and he found several frogs that were new to science like previously undiscovered and I just remember this moment where it was almost a little bit of an epiphany where I realized that this guy had as much or more passion for what he was doing than I did for adventure but that his 
work actually mattered to humanity, <laughs> whereas mine right. didn't. And it was a, another one of these watershed moments, I think you used that term, where it, it became real. Before that, it was just sort of a, it was kind of like a hypothetical. And I, I sort of put it together in that way, and I was still actually doing the same thing, where I was using it as an excuse for me to go on my next adventure. And then it became a real thing. And I think that at that point, I kind of pivoted a bit. I think that's when I realized that climbing was one way of finding kind of what I was looking for and that I sort of had a little bit of a platform because of the background that I had and because I was a writer and that I could use those two skills together. And I had this potential to have a really unique niche where I could use the things that I was good at to tell stories about the places where adventure collides with biology, adventure collides with natural history or conservation or culture or even something like uh, psychology, like in the case of, of, of the story of Honold free soloing El Cap, which is sort of about the limits of human potential and how he was able to do what he does and I, you know I was I was lucky to um to be able to start working with with National Geographic and that I think is kind of the formula there that they're always looking for with their stories it's led me on all these great assignments and this is kind of what I what I talk about when I when I do presentations but you know I like I've gone to this crazy cave in Uzbekistan called Dark Star which the Russians have been exploring since the early 1980s and they can't find the bottom of it. And they're doing paleoclimatology in the cave. And the paleoclimatology is helping to inform where they can find the passageways that might lead it deeper into the earth, like essentially eventually becoming the Everest of caves. I got to do a story called The Last Honey Hunter with Renan Osterk in the jungles of eastern Nepal about these guys that were harvesting hallucinogenic honey from these cliffs out in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. And all these stories that I've been doing, I'm kind of like relying on my background as an adventurer and a climber to kind of get me into places that would otherwise be kind of hard to get to. I just did this again. Recently, I was in Guyana with Bruce. Bruce Means, the scientist again, and it was our fifth expedition. And um, and we recruited Honold, and we had this amazing Venezuelan climber named Federico Pisani, and we had Renan and this whole crew, and we we told another one of these stories, and so I'm doing the same stuff that I've always done. It's it's really all the exact same as when we were hanging out 30 years ago. It's just that now the focus has shifted to the storytelling part and I've just sort of opened my mind and kind of expanded my horizons to uh, kind of realize that it doesn't have to be climbing that there's lots of other ways to find these sublime experiences you know that we're all looking for when we're out you know on the cliff or in the mountain the breadth of your experience I think you talked about having climbing experience getting you to these places but um, it seems to me that like one of the biggest values someone like you has is simply 
your ability to operate, you know, in countries where things aren't the same as you're used to, uh, and also in situations where a lot of people might be way more stressed out. You know, what do you bring to the table in terms of that? And, and has that, have you been able to pass that down to some of the folks that you go on these expeditions now as someone who's been doing it for 30 years or more at this point? You know, as you know, the, the trips are, they're, they're hard, you know, they're, they're stressful. This last one that I just did in the jungle down in Guyana, it was a hard trip. It was, it was rugged. And, um, I think the more of, of those that you, that you do, you know, hopefully the better that you get at maintaining your composure and just being able to maintain a stiff upper lip when things kind of get squirrely. And the one thing that right. you can count on 100% is that they're going to get squirrely and you're going to have a plan. I mean, especially if you're going for like real true blue adventure. And this, this last trip that I did was, was, was definitely all of that. And then, you know, a lot of times, like the stuff that I'm doing nowadays, we're documenting it in a pretty heavy handed way. You know, and we have like a full production team and all of that. And there's a lot of stresses that go along with that cameras you know and like being recorded like everything that you're doing and so it uh it it can just feel kind of heavy i mean it's it's interesting you say that because it's like it's it's a whole different thing and it takes you have to approach it with a different mentality because I, I mean i've only done it once i went on a trip that was set up to make a movie and I basically never did it again. Cause I was just like, this is not for me, you know, this whole shot getting and setting things up ahead of time and, you know, filling in the gaps with like shots that may or may not have actually happened that way. I mean, all that sort of stuff that goes with it is, is a, a taste that you have to be ready for, so to speak. And, and I found myself, not that interested in it after one time. And it's, um, so it's uh, just hearing you say that I started to think about how much it changes something like, uh, what you were used to, you know, again, 30 years ago and, and baffing on your adventures. Yeah. It's good that you have that experience. So you understand and appreciate what I'm talking about. And, um, I've seen kind of both sides because I've been on lots of soul brother trips where we just went and did our thing and then I've been on full productions and you know nowadays it's more and more of the latter and it's you know basically just become my job and a lot of these stories that I'm talking about like if you come up with a good story if you do basically what I do for a living and you come up with a good story, if it's a good story for a magazine or a book, it's probably going to be a good film. And so so it all just goes together. You know, the way that I've been trying to make that okay is by working with people that are good at making it okay. Jimmy Chin and, and uh, Renan, it doesn't feel as oppressive as it could be and or or as it has been having worked with other people i mean doing this with renan recently man you'd be surprised like 
I, I think if you were with us, you'd be like, you know what? This isn't that bad because they're right. they're just chill and they're easy to work with. And then what happens is it comes out like, I mean, you've seen his work. It comes out and you're like, holy shit, like, this is freaking rad. And then you get to right. share it with the world and with the climbing community. And most of the people who, who probably listen to this podcast, you know, have seen Renan's work. And it's just a... It's just a cool thing, you know, so I feel really, um, really lucky to be part of it. But would I rather not always have a camera in my face, you know, like 100%. But what I've, what I've tried to do and what I've tried to teach myself over the years is to just, this is really hard to do, but to pretend that I'm not being filmed and to just try to be myself. And just to try to be as real as I possibly can. And, you know, the Everest film, I don't know if you saw it. There, there's actually two that Renan did. One's called Lost on Everest. And the other one is the behind the scenes for Sony, which is Renan's camera sponsor. And that one's called Ghosts of Everest. But both films, normally, like, when I see myself in, in one of these productions, like, I can't handle it. I can't watch it. It's just so cringeworthy. I don't want to, you know, watch myself. I don't want to listen to myself in a podcast. But I watched that film, and it was just okay. And the reason why is because everybody in it was just being themselves. And it, and it had an authenticity. And so there is a payback, I think, if if you're willing to uh to embrace it like i have when it turns out well then you know then you get to go on this great adventure and you get to experience it and and hopefully you know all of the production and everything isn't so onerous that it starts to really um taint the experience and so you get through it and it's and it's positive and you get a lot out of it and then you have this thing that you can show your kids or you can put on up on the bookshelf, you know, kind of like you do with a book. And I have to say that I, that I do like that idea and I do appreciate that. And on the bookshelf right here on the other side of the wall, I have books that were written by my father and that were written by my grandfather. And honestly, I, I cherish those and I look at them. And when people come over here and they want to look at my bookshelf, I have this awesome bookshelf, like built in, walls of of books and i have i mean you personally would appreciate it because i have like two shelves of guidebooks i have all back in the day i bought all the back issues of the american alpine journal going back to like you know like 1900 and alpinist magazine and climbing and all that it's all here on this shelf but including some books that were written you know by my blood and it's pretty cool. And so I, I feel kind of proud, you know, that I've created stuff that I could put up there. And um, I don't know if everybody will appreciate that. You know, that means something to me. And I like the idea of thinking, you know, that like grandkids currently I don't have any or whoever down the road. You know, I want my house here in New Hampshire where I live. I, I want to be buried in the backyard if I ever die, which hopefully I won't. And <laughs> I... I, I want to be back there, and then I want I want people to live here in this house multiple generations from now, and I want someday some kid to like go and pull this off and flip through it and be like, oh wow, this is cool. Like they did some cool shit, and maybe be inspired by it. 
and go and do whatever, you know, the modern iteration of that might be, you know, for them. Was there ever an expedition that crushed you? Was there one that you came back from, like a hollowed out shell of yourself? (laughs) I think so. I think the, um, the, the great Trango tower in 1999, I wrote about that in my book, the impossible climb. I have a chapter. I think it's called crashing the gravy train on the vertical mile. There's not really a story I want to tell. If anybody wants to know that story, they can read that. I told it in that book. It crushed me because, you know, this solidarity and and goodwill and this um, awesome feeling that we get from being part of a team and part of the climbing tribe when we go on this expedition, like these expeditions, we, we didn't have it on that trip. Like it didn't, it didn't jive. And so that's why... That's why that trip, you know, it, it, it crushed me. And then after the expedition, um, we came home and like very shortly afterwards, Alex Lowe died in an avalanche. Mm-hmm. So I was never able to um, like smooth that out with him because we, you know, we had bad blood on that trip. And um, like I really admired the guy and... Um, really thought of him as a friend and I don't really even know what went wrong and I was never able to settle it and so right. like when you ask that question yep that's the one like I can't even really think of any others you know because mm-hmm. every like almost everything that I've gone on has been really really positive and and one of the things that's so sad is about it is that you know, as I said, that was always my dream to go to Trango, and I right. I was I was going to bring that up. I you did. Know, like it, it happened on this. This it was my dream climb. Yeah, this thing, and right. we did it, and we did the climb, and it was it's the you know the most epic thing that I've ever done. Now that I'm 51, you know, I could sadly acknowledge like I won't, I won't do anything more. You peaked. more epic than right. that. Um, you know, I was 29 years old. Perfect. People can think whatever. Uh, you didn't free climb the route or whatever. It's like cool. Like go check it out yourself. It's a six that. Yeah, it's right. a six thousand foot cliff. I don't think anyone's saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they are or not, but I know there's a, so there's a thread on Mountain Project there, where they there's just, a lot of why didn't they free? There's it? a lot of haters out there, um, and so like my greatest climb um, was sure. just sort of tainted a little bit by the fact that. Uh, you know, the solidarity wasn't, wasn't there, you know, amongst the team. And so, yeah, that's a shame. Like I'll always regret that, you know, basically for as long as I live. One of the reasons we ended up finally doing this, we've been talking about it for, for a couple of years, felt like the right time this time is this book that's coming out the third pole, which is about you going to Everest, uh, you know, ostensibly to search for uh, Sandy Irvine's remains uh, Mallory was found, what was it, 1999? Yes. The original that yeah. came across to him with this idea that that's always been out there in the mythology of mountaineering that he's got some camera, right? He's got a camera that the Kodak people who who's still alive that can do this, but uh, apparently they could maybe pull some, some images out of this frozen, you know, preserved cameras. But the question I kind of have is the same one that uh, your current wife had. I guess was like, you know, 
coming from where you came from as this expedition climber, generally, whatever, if it's not looking down your nose, at least, you know, looking a different direction than 8,000 meter climbing, especially what it's become in the last say decade. So talk about this drive to go climb on Everest on, you know, what was going to be a supported expedition, the fixed ropes, the whole thing. how did you get drawn into that? And, and, uh, you know, and then we'll, we'll maybe move into kind of what you learned. It's kind of a long story and it's, it's complicated in terms of the way that I got sucked in. There's different layers to it. You know, part, part of it, I think like first and foremost is the, the story of, of Mallory and Irvin. That's, that's initially what sucked me in. And I think part of the reason why it, it, it took a hold of me in the way that it did is because of the fact that I was so deep in into my my life as a climber, but yet I had never given Everest any due. And like if you looked at this bookshelf that I'm referring to, you'll see like all the classic mountaineering books, all of which I've read, most of which I read when I was a young climber, and I never read anything about Everest because I came of age as a climber in the 90s, which was the era kind of when when Everest developed its modern stigma everybody knows knows about. Like, I don't have to describe what that is. Like, we all know and you know what that is. And I was 100% on board with that. As a result of that, I didn't study it in the way that I did, you know, all the other history of mountaineering. And what happened was that I went to a talk given by a, a good friend of mine who lives right right near me here in New Hampshire. And he was part of the expedition in 1999 that discovered the remains of, of George Mallory. And he talked about that discovery and he, and he talked about the mystery. I was there with my daughter and it kind of... I guess opened my eyes to what those guys were doing back in the 1920s and how it was exactly the kind of exploration that I had always admired. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't really know this story. And I, and I actually asked myself, have I ever read a book about Mallory and Irvin? And I realized that I hadn't and I went home and I went to this bookshelf and I looked on it there was only one Everest book and it was into thin air and I thought to myself wow I've only ever read one Everest book and it's a book that gives a big thumbs down to the whole scene really and it's a book that right. it's about essentially the thesis of the book is that if you have enough money you can buy your way to the top of this mountain and that's what turned me and probably you and a lot of other people to the to the whole thing it's still going on today and i realized you know what i haven't given these guys their fair measure and so i ordered all of these books about it one of which really kind of the magnum opus on the subject is called into the silence by wade davis sure. and, I, and i read that book and it just kind of blew my mind um, about what these guys were doing in the 1920s and why they were doing it. 
and what was driving them and what kind of spirit was inside of these guys. And then I started thinking, you know, what if someone wanted to tell this story now? How would they do it? What if someone wanted to do this in this style of writing that I'm, you know, into and admiring, which, you know, I would call immersive journalism, where the the person who's writing the book immerses themselves into the story. They, they become part of the story, um, which is not the case in Into the Silence. You know, I mean, Wade Davis sort of does that from more of an academic historian perspective. And I quickly realized that the the way to do that would be to go to Everest to try to solve the mystery and try to find Sandy Irvin because nobody has ever found him. You know, that's that's the conversation that I had with my wife Hampton. And that's, uh, you know, when I first told her Everest, she was like, oh, there's no way. Like, that makes no sense. That's not you. Everybody's already done that. Everest is a shit show, et cetera, et cetera. Sort of the, the standard narrative that we all know. Then I sort of ex- started explaining, well, I see the potential for a cool story that I could tell here. I could tell the Mallory and Irvin story, but not do it from my armchair at home. I could follow in their footsteps. And even though I don't think I admitted it to her at that time, the subtext was, I've been climbing my whole life, and I secretly really want to know what the hell is it like at 8,000 meters? Or Mm. what's it like at 8,800 meters? And the truth is... And I, I'm guessing you've probably wondered about this yourself. Like, what is it like up there? And it, well, and also, how would I perform? Yeah, how would I do? And especially coming from you know this place of where we're like, yeah, Everest is bullshit, and it's just like Rich Dennis going to the top. Like, that's one thing to say that again from your armchair at home or from your sport crag, you know, here in Colorado. Uh, it's certainly another to put yourself in the same position and find out what you can do up there. Yeah, I mean, the tr- the truth is that I saw the potential for a great story. And I guess the other thing here, I mean, a normal cast is where we can all just tell it like it is, I guess. Everything that I do is all focused on me having cool experiences in the world. And that's what I want my job to be. I don't. I don't want to just right. be out there like making money, so I can pay bills. I want to use the fact that I have to work, and I have to generate income. I want to do that in a way where I'm having a kick-ass time and doing cool shit that I get a lot out <laughs> of. And so, mm. I mean, that's obvious. But I'll just sort of. I mean, I think we're all on the same page there. I went in a certain direction, you know, as a young person and realized that I didn't really want to follow in my dad's footsteps and just be a banker. And I was a climber and then I just got lucky and cool shit started happening and I got opportunities to be a pro climber and to tell stories and present and all that. And I'm still doing the same thing now. The thing that's guiding me is just trying to uh, to find stories that that really come from the heart. And this Everest thing on the surface seems like it's not that, like it doesn't really fit. But it it 
it did actually. And, um, and that's the story that I, that I tell in the book. And the great thing about writing and the platform of a book in particular, you know, more so than an article is that I have 400 pages to say what I want to say about this. And I was able to spend two years crafting exactly what I wanted to say about it, you know, which I did. And I hope that people will be, will be curious about that. But I, um, yeah, I put, I put a lot into that. You know, if I, if I had to go back and do it again, I would do it again because it was, it was absolutely awesome. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, I also looked at the task of reading that book. I was like excited because you wrote it and we're friends and I've, I've watched your career but there was part of my brain was like, oh, Everest book, you know, <laughs> the same way that you've been for whatever up until this point. And even though I haven't finished it yet, I'm going to because, yeah, it totally drew me in. And I love the history stuff. And I've read Into the Silence a couple times and, and blown away with it because I also have a real interest in World War One history. And that's all tied in there. But then I realized right as I opened the book and I started reading and in the preface even is that I also was like, well, I know all this stuff about Mallory because Into the Silence really focused a lot on him. And I was like, I don't know about this other cat, you know, other than his sort of peripheral role in, in that other book. And so, yeah, it drew, drew me right in. And, and, th and that's been a lot of fun. And, and um, I've been up late reading it for sure the last few nights. So did your attitude, I mean, in a personal way about what it means to sort of be on that mountain how did it change and what did you learn in terms of, you know, these preconceived notions or these notions that you got from Krakauer's book uh, versus what the reality was? You know, I think we all we all have the uh, the same impression of what Everest is, you know, all of us who haven't been there before, because we're we're told, you know, what the story is in the you know modern day media it started with with Krakauer's book and it's continued since i mean it was it was it was actually really big in in 2019 with the that viral photo that went around and the story mm -hmm. of just what it's a shit show i mean a, a lot of people probably read about it in the new york times i mean you look at the forum there was a there was a big article in the New York Times with the conga line photo, and then in the forum there was I mean I looked at it there was some like two thousand comments and it was like almost ninety percent haters. And you were uh, you were in the zone when that yeah. was taken right not in the line but you were down. We we chose not to go to the summit. We specifically avoided being in that conga line because we knew what it would entail. You know by the way. Just for anyone who doesn't remember this, there were 11 people that died in 2019, and there mm -hmm. were eight people that died in 1996. So it was it was a it was a tragic year. There's reasons why. I happened to be there. I'm a journalist. I was writing a book. My book is about the history and about trying to solve the mystery of who climbed Everest first. But I'm on the mountain and I'm witnessing all this, so I'm going to report on it. And I did. And I look forward to you getting to that part of the book because it's actually, I think, the best 
the best part of it when you get to the the end i have a chapter called the day everest broke i have some a lot of uh epic stories about what happened up mm-hmm. there and what is it actually like to be in that conga line and why is it there and what's happening to the people and who died and how and why most of the people listening to this i'm sure think that those people are all jerks because (laughs) like who would want to do that it's so lame you know you use oxygen you're cheating using fixed ropes you're exploiting the sherpas all that i just want to say i believed all of that 100 percent. i went in to this on the same page with anybody who thinks that and so was Renan and Tom Pollard and all the other guys on our team. Then we got there and we started hanging out with all the people who were trying to climb Everest. And there's like a weird thing happened right off the bat. And I remember sitting in camp with our crew and looking at each other and saying, wow, like this is not really what we thought. Like all these people are really cool. And they're not rich dentists. They're like scrappy drywallers from the suburbs of London who saved up for 10 years because they thought it would be really cool to try to do like something remarkable. And a lot of them are trying to climb the seven summits and, you know, core climbers want to bag on them. I'm sure they do. It's really popular and cool nowadays to be a hater on the Internet. I'd say it's way easier to sit around and write mean shit on the internet than it is to go and climb Mount Everest. I would just say, before you comment on the whole thing, go there and check it out. And hang out with these people and see who they actually are. Because they're they're not rich dentists and lawyers. There are some, even those guys, those men and women are cool people. I never I never encountered a single person who I didn't admire and enjoy hanging out with. And I I like to think of myself as an open-minded, open-eyed, real person and I appreciated every single person that I met on the mountain. And maybe some of them aren't shouldn't be there because they don't have enough experience or, you know, they shouldn't be doing it because they're not pure enough because they can't do it without oxygen. I've definitely been seeing comments about that kind of thing. Um, but they're they're trying to do something cool. And that's way better than sitting at home and writing mean shit on the internet. And so so I admired all those people. And I I climbed the mountain and I got to see what it's like. And I would just say anyone who thinks that it's light duty should go and give it a try and see what it's like because it's it's actually really <laughs> freaking rugged. And just to even get to the point where it's time to go up the mountain to like actually make a summit bid and not be sick or hurt or so demoralized that you can't do it is a lot. You know, that that's one of the takeaways and that's what I write about. That's not to say that it isn't a shit show. It is it is a shit show. There's there's poor management on both sides of the mountain. Um, I mean, I, I think the fault, if you want to put it somewhere, it ultimately lies with the 
governments that are kind of running like Everest Incorporated that are basically running it as a business to try to make as much money as they can. I think they are ultimately responsible for the fact that the mountain is getting trashed. The mount on the north side, the mountain was not trashed until we got to Camp Two. Camp Two and Three are trashed. I mean, they're garbage dumps, and that is really painful to see. But projecting all the hate onto the people that are climbing the mountain, I think, is misguided. There's quite a bit of that. I'm pretty keen to it now, you know, because I used to be one of them. And then I went, I saw what it was all about. I spent, you know, three years of my life on this project and writing this book. Anybody who's listening to this, if you're curious, I wrote 400 pages on this subject. And and I did it right. thoughtfully. And I'm, and I'm kind of a lifer as a climber, you know. And I really am a climber, you know. I'm not, I'm not the best climber in the world. I'm not Alex Honnold or anything like that. But I, I climb all the time, and I always have since I was a kid. And I will continue to do so until I can't anymore, you know. Like, literally, until I cannot go up the cliff. But, um, you know, that's that's my perspective. Any of these kids uh, interested in writing? Right now... You need to keep adding yeah, those books, right, adding those generational yeah, books. I hope so. I mean, I think that would be cool. <laughs> there, You know, writing is one of these weird things where... I mean, I remember... Like as a young man, when I lived in Carbondale, Colorado, having a mentor who told me like you can't you can't make a living as a writer. Don't try. It's not it's not a thing. You can't do it. And like they're pretty much right. But you can if you're scrappy and you right. try really freaking hard for, <laughs> you know, 30 years. You can actually do it. But you have to get kind of lucky. So I don't know if I'd recommend to anyone, yeah, be a writer. But if anybody could find their way there eventually, I think it would be awesome. And I think there's, you know, there's there's potential there for that. You know, the funny thing is, is that I've I've ended up a lot kind of like my dad in terms of my perspective on things. And I never imagined in a million years that I would be. And I can understand now why he was so horrified when I graduated from college and I moved out to Yosemite and moved into a cave and told them that I wasn't going to have a career, I mean, I'm giving my kids the same advice that he gave me. Like, let's do, <laughs> up, right? How that let's do something real. Don't do what I did. It's worked out for me. I feel like I've been super lucky. Like, super lucky. I would rather see them follow that traditional path that my dad wanted me to follow and that I there was no possible way that that was going to happen and um I guess we'll just have to see how it works out but you know the main thing is that I just want them to follow whatever their passion might be and for me it was climbing you know and it still is and ultimately I think you know this is kind of part of what we're talking about what I figured out is really adventure than exploration and climbing is an awesome way to seek that out but it's not the only way and uh so that's my thing you know i just want my kids to find whatever whatever their thing is and it can be whatever i don't care as long as they care about it 
Well, cool, Mark. Thanks a lot for all this time because there was this effing around period that we had to get into before this thing ever worked. Thanks a lot, man. It's been great to catch up. And what do you know? Maybe we'll end up seeing each other face to face one of these days. I can't believe that that hasn't happened all these years. It's weird because you just said you lived in Carbondale, but it must have been before me or simultaneously we didn't catch up or something. I don't know what yeah, years Yeah, when I that. said that, I had this weird flash where I'm like, holy shit, I think Caloose was in Carbondale too. Um, that, well, that was before. That was, that was in like 93, 94. Oh, yeah, see. You know. No, I would. I didn't come here to to tell two thousand. Yeah. No. So I have some miss each other here. I have yeah, some cool. good stories about those days, uh, but those are the ones we have to share off the record. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we will. We'll meet up, and you you know, if not in Colorado, you'll come to New Hampshire, and I will. Like, if I know you're coming, I'll train. You know, on like my routes that I've been climbing for thirty years. And I'll try to get right. them all dialed in so that I can sandbag you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Man. Well, a good sandbag would be to put me on your damn boat. Yeah, or yeah. Because uh, I'm not a boat person, but I'll give it a try. Well, we'll sail and climb. <laughs> you can come to Maine and we'll sail to Acadia and we'll climb some sea cliffs. And then we'll drink, Sick. you know, like some whiskey, rum or vodka, whatever your preference might be. And um, that would be awesome. So you just say the word. Cool. And our boys can it'll play be, together because they're the yeah, same damn age. Yeah, it'll be awesome. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mark for sitting down. It's great to catch up with that guy. Hopefully we can make one of those trips work. Sailing. Ugh. That sounds scary to me. But it turns out Mark's a crack sailor as well. Okay, as long as we're promoting Mark's book, I want to give another shout out to Into the Silence by Wade Davis. An incredible perspective on those early attempts on Everest. George Mallory is a very intriguing figure. And those times are now fraught with ideas of imperialism and white supremacy and everything that goes with the uh, British Empire and the way Asia was subjugated, literally. But save your perspective on who those guys were, the men who made these attempts on Everest until you read this book. Their motivations were pretty complicated, especially Mallory's. Put it on your list. Anyway. All right, folks. Himalayan climbing, fraught with tragedy. Let's make our climbing not so much fraught with tragedy. Be safe out there. Be careful. Look after each other. And of course, check your knots. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 